Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right. Great day, everyone. I want to welcome you to another geopolitical roundtable discussion. Uh, very excited today. We know we, we we launched this last month and had a great time uh, with our conversation, our discussion. So we we, we scheduled again. So, uh, you know, again, want to want to welcome everyone. Uh, I know everyone's very excited about it. I am as well. Uh, today we have with us uh, Velas uh, from uh, from Rogue News, uh, V the Grill Economist from Rogue News, Matthew Errett. Uh, you can follow his work at his Substack. Uh, London Paul of the Sears Report and Ken Shortgun Jr. of Shotgun Economics and also the Gadfly. Gentlemen, great day. How's everyone doing? Morning. Excellent. Morning, afternoon, evening. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Things are doing good. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, before we kick things off, just you know, want to remind everyone, do us a favor. Uh, go if you look at the description of this video, every comment, the contributions go to the each contributor's site. Uh, bookmark, subscribe, uh, show some love and support there as well. Uh, very excited today for today's discussion, and we're going to reverse the order that we went uh, last uh, last roundtable discussion. So I thought we'd kick things off with just some uh, opening, uh, you know, comments, uh, flow through some topics, and then uh, for everyone, we didn't we didn't post this, but we're actually going to try to do some. Uh, some Q&A uh, later on uh, for today's discussion. So I'll let everyone know, don't post your questions right now. As we get closer, I'll make sure to notify everyone to do that via the chat. So to kick things off today, we have Velas uh, that's going to do his opening comments. So go for it, Velas. Hey, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever all of you may be. Uh, glad to be back on the, the panel with everybody again. Um, my main uh, thoughts or focus uh, is right now, again, on a number of topics, but, but most notably this morning, the, the topic I was covering last Friday about South America, uh, specifically the goings-on in, in uh, Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia. That's basically three countries in six months, two of whom with large natural resource um, assets and another one who's significant in uh, banking and trade and cargo. Um, so... That's a lot of countries in a short period of time, and there's an old joke in South Florida uh, about whether or not people from South America are in town and they're leasing or they're buying um, assets, whether a place to live or companies or things of that nature. So whenever Argentina it runs into a problem, people tend to lease and are there for a while or in, in the southeast of the United States. Uh, but when people from Venezuela started showing up a number of years ago and were, were buying up real estate where they could... Uh, that was an indicator it was going to be a long haul, and the same is proving true right now, folks, from Colombia. So that's my my opening. Awesome. I appreciate that. And uh, I believe next we're going to V, the Gilead Commas. So, V, go for it. 
I guess uh, one of the things I'd like to touch upon is the uh, what the Chinese media has so aptly named the Last Supper. And uh, you, you guys know about the photo ops that were done on the G7, the relevancy of these uh, gaggling group of morons. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, you know, like to dive deep into that a little bit more, um, especially hot on the heels where right now uh, the intelligence uh, agencies, as well as the military incompetent complex, are putting out articles, especially the one on <laughs> Bloomberg, which I literally had to spit coffee on my computer screen and fell off my uh, my uh, drafting chair. I use a drafting chair with a standing desk at times. And I literally fell off. I've injured my elbow in the process. And uh, laughing hysterically because Bloomberg ran an article this morning. Win or lose, U.S. war against China or Russia won't be short. I mean, the level of lunacy here is quite incredible. So we'll probably do some, uh, some, uh, some touching base on that stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Matthew. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, w- I won't say too much here at the beginning, but um, I-, I think definitely just follow- following the folly of the uh, the fallen <laughs> is uh, <laughs> is interesting at, at uh, the G7, and uh, just hearing some of these guys uh, express their ideas of this fake inside-out world that they think they live in, um, like Biden coming out saying that Putin is a worthy opponent. I mean, but stammering through, a- <laughs> battling battling his dementia. Uh, every question is like a is like a, a real final test on an exam where you could just see he's, he could potentially break. It's painful and funny to watch all the time. Um, but these guys are just like now unveiling. We're getting closer to an idea of this green, green, clean initiative, which is this counter to the BRI that they've been talking about for months and months, uh, which which the G7 is going to go hard on now and find fund a real green global Green New Deal uh, to stop the the virulent influence of the polluting bad Chinese, and it's just it's 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 sad and entertaining in some ways uh, together uh, to listen to this. So I mean, I, I think just seeing the clash of parrot of of perceptions one one set of perceptions of the multipolar world having a firm grip in what reality is and what what human beings actually need going into the future uh, with their political security economic architecture. Versus this other thing, which has a, an ivory tower technocratic view of the way they think the uni- universe works, that they're willing to die for, it seems, uh, that has no bearing, no bearing in reality at all. And it's, it's the fruit of a lot of, a lot of fun discussion, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. Uh, Paul, go for it. Right, I'll be very short and brief, because I think I pretty much echo what I said last time as an introduction. We are clearly witnessing the death of an old reality and the birth of a new reality. And as the old reality perishes, it becomes more irrelevant, more absurd, more ludicrous. In fact, any adjective that you want to describe in the negative. And yes, of course, we we ought to talk about G7 and NATO and various other entities and institutions. And then, of course, there's the flip side, which is the new reality the new reality is just looking at the old reality going, what are you doing? Why do you continue to persist with this absurdity? And you know, I, I made this point a long time ago, and it's worth saying, that this idea that the old reality is, is, is going to retain its relevance and somehow it's going to, to spawn this technocratic world in the future is just I'm sorry, it's absolute nonsense. Because 
it has no relevance in the world. The rest of the world's moving on. It's increasingly becoming more irrelevant. It's a very small, well, not even group of nations. It's basically the US and a few vassal states who there is no substance to it. So we need to start reflecting uh, as much as what the new reality is, but we also need to track what the old reality is is doing as it just slowly collapses in of itself. Yeah, yeah. Very well said. Uh, Ken, uh, your opening comments, and let's go ahead and jump into your, after you're finished, jump into your, your first topic, please. Yeah, I could probably transition uh, from one right to the other because that's exactly what my opening comments are going to be about. Uh, I, I personally think that we have we are closer to the end, not just of the dollar as a unipolar reserve currency, but the dollar period uh, in probably the last 140 years. And I'm going back to the populist movement of the 1870s where the argument over gold and silver as, uh, as the primary currency was the biggest hot topic. So much so it affected politics, it affected uh, um, the Industrial Revolution, it affected a lot of things. Looking at uh, inflation, three banks, Rabobank, Bank of America, and uh, Deutsche Bank have all brought up that, that word, hyperinflation. And as we've talked about numerous times, hyperinflation is a uh, uh, confidence event, not a monetary event. So when you start talking about the confidence you have to look at what uh, China and Russia are. They are deciding to now uh, start working against the dollar openly. Um, the when when inflation gets to a certain point, and and especially with this uh, Green New Deal, the ESG, environmental societal governance, when that starts uh, seeing gas at the pumps be ten to twenty dollars a gallon, when it starts seeing uh, food up another 40%, 60%. That's when the population is going to lose confidence in the dollar. And I believe uh, from examples I'm going to go ahead and show, we are probably within months, if not uh, two years at the most, uh, if we stay on this course from seeing the dollar and the reserve, seeing unipolar reserve currency gone forever. Yeah, who wants to follow up that uh, follow up with that in regards to the inflation and everything that uh, Kenneth stated? Fellas, sure. <laughs> um, well, and it, it it goes to some of the content a number of us have covered uh, on our independent programs as well. Which is when I look at the events in South America, uh, as I led off with earlier. To me, a lot of the drive on inflation, as we've seen, is is they're choking off the supply. Uh, whether by design or just taking advantage of, of the situation we see in a number of, of these countries uh, by choking off raw materials. In fact, I saw a story the other day, which is kind of funny, but it goes to how far this whole supply chain problem is gone and contributing to inflation, which is, uh, as here in the United States, we're approaching July 4th uh, holiday in a few weeks. Uh, we're running out of fireworks. I mean, it's all fun and games until we start running out of fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is awesome, and we do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that is a village guy put that out there. That that should be the motto of, of uh, exceptional stand. Everything is awesome, and we do stuff. <laughs> we do stuff. <laughs> hey, real, real quick, real quick, I want to jump in because, uh, like I said, I wanted to transition to a few uh, uh, examples, and then you guys can go ahead and just. Uh, oh, my uh, bad, Ken. I thought. <laughs> 
Go ahead. Oh, go no, for no, it. no worries. Um, <laughs> we we had a couple weeks ago, Russia uh, order that its businesses no longer uh, trade in dollars. They're going to accept euros, rubles, probably yuan, etc. But anything but dollars. Cutting off that. China has just uh, come out with now. It's not officially on paper, but uh, leaks that are coming out. They are going to bring some massive sanctions against all of the companies that function either trade with or are uh, manufacture within China. Um, new uh, sanctions as well as uh, per perhaps better word taxation. Uh, in that's going to be not just tit for tat with uh, what the sanctions the West does, but pretty much going to. Uh, have the ca capacity of destroying large swaths of uh, the European and U.S. economies because most of the manufacturing is done in uh, in China. And that especially as the prices, uh, you think inflation, consumer price inflation is high now, you start seeing some of those uh, repercussions, consequences of the Chinese sanctions come on to products that are uh, imported into the U.S. And that's going to just shoot prices through the roof um john williams uh spoke on uh a program recently and he said he said he believes that inflation right now isn't the five percent that uh the transitory clowns at the fed are referring to it's between 12 and 14 percent right now yeah and he, he's Ken, real quick, uh, you're right about that there's a few firms that i i, I call that they, they they peg it between uh, 13.21 and 14.65, I believe it was. Yeah, it's, it's only going faster because the supply supply chain uh, issues are still going on. We don't have full planes. Uh, uh, As a matter of fact, there's now this continuous variant D. You know, this sounds like a, uh, a bad new vitamin for dieting. Um, but the other thing that uh, stood out to me is home prices. And I decided to use some... Uh, I've been monitoring for the past about six months. One, a home that my parents used to own in Missoula, Montana, and they sold it for 87000 back in 1987. Right now, the value of that home is 420000 in just 34 <laughs> wow. years. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad, who bought a home here in uh, in Phoenix in 2009 for about 270000 Two hundred nine thousand dollars. That home value is four hundred fifty-six thousand. It's more than doubled in less than twelve years. Now, of course, I, I took two different areas: Montana, Phoenix. Well, there was a uh, article that um, not Brandon Smith, but uh, one of the other alt media guys um, wrote on recently. I think it was Miss Shedlock. And there was uh, ever since the lockdowns and the quote unquote pandemic, seventy seven hundred, at least seventy seven hundred that he's counted, uh, wealthy have bought land all across Montana, just buying up everything. And I was really pulled into uh, being reminded of that uh, quote, whether it's actually from Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, or not, but. We also know that BlackRock is pretty much buying up, overpaying for every single type of property. There was a new housing uh, unit that was built in Texas, I believe, um, 2,200 homes, and it was bought up completely by BlackRock. 
And so if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, which we have now, then by deflation, the banks and corporations, both of them that will grow up around them will de deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. How many of the how many of those things in that one statement are occurring right now? All of it. All of it. Look at California and the homeless. Look at uh, how much property is being being uh, taken away from the uh, from the American people that uh, because they don't have access first access to all this cheap cheap credit, and it's all tied to the central bank. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Actually, there's, there's an interesting point there, Ken, with regards to uh, these institutions buying everything up. It's all well and good buying everything up, but if in the end you've got no one to rent it to, mm -hmm. and this is starting to happen in commercial real estate, all these institutions bought huge amounts of real estate, up, and now they're finding no one wants it, no one wants to rent it, and they're stuck with it. And this is what they're going to end up finding. They think it's all very clever to do what they're doing, but they're going to end up paying. Well, frankly, I'm quite pleased they'll pay an enormous price for doing this. The other point worth making with regards to supply chains, it, what's now self-evident with regards particularly European businesses, a lot of European businesses actually, and you, you make the point about the threat of sanctions, which basically means that if, a company who has operations in China, say European or American, actually implements these sanctions or uh, measures that the US wants to impose uh, on China. If you've got operations in in China, but you implement the sanctions, then they're gonna then they're gonna come after you. But what, despite that fact, what is absolutely the case is more and more European businesses want to move uh, or expand or open operations in China. And one of the principal reasons, apart from why they'd want to do it, is because the Chinese economy is, is rotating. It's going to be this enormous consumption-based economy. The other statement they've made is we want to move there because there aren't supply chain issues in China. So there are, well, most of the world's going, we don't have supply chain. They're saying the supply chains are not a problem in China. Now, part of that is because China's bought up enormous resources in the last year and they're stockpiling. So they probably, in part, created a shortage. Now, there can be an argument where someone will say they've done it deliberately and other people say, well, actually, it was just an opportunity to support markets. So there's two schools of thought. But what they have done, undoubtedly, is contributed to some supply chain shortages in certain commodity. But it appears that if you go to China, then you don't have these supply chain problems. Now, we know China suffered some degree of price inflation recently, but that's separate from the fact of them building up enormous surpluses in commodities. But that is an important factor, is that they don't think it's so big a problem there as we're experiencing globally. And, and Vallis makes the point to what extent is this an intended, well, not necessarily an intended problem, but a problem that exists. Because the plain, simple fact is you can have supply shortages 
not necessarily because you can't get hold of the resources. You just simply aren't able to buy those resources because whoever's selling them to you is going, well, hang on. We don't want you to pay us in 90 days or 120 days. We want payment now. And these companies that exist as hand to mouth, again, we can't pay under those terms. We want to pay under the terms of our existing credit agreements or the credit agreement we once had. And they're going, no, that's not possible. That can create supply shortages. So as one example, so there are many reasons why you have supply chain problems. And it can also be because and this is not widespread by any stretch of the imagination. But if you start to get to the point where certain entities go, well, actually, we don't want to accept dollars anymore for, uh, for, for, for uh, if we're selling you goods, then that could equally become a problem. And I'm not suggesting for one minute it's a widespread problem at this point. It might be in the future and sooner than we perceive. But that is something else we need to factor into what is causing these problems. But I think most interestingly, it's seen as far less of a problem. So if you go and expand your operations in China, then you, you get around these problems. So they've got reliable sources of raw materials. So therefore, they can produce goods, say, in China and sell them into the market. Okay, they're all cost benefits for them to do that. But rather than if I'm based in Europe and I've got a business, then I have these uh, supply chain issues. Therefore, if I move operations there, I'm going to be able to produce my goods reliably and sell them into the market. If I try to do it in Europe, I've got big problems. Mm. Paul raises an interesting point, which I don't know the answer to this, but I, I put it to all of you in case one of you might know. Based on what Paul just said, it begs the question, what is the current situation concerning lines of credit at the commercial level to corporations from their banks. It's a huge because when you have, Well, yeah, but I mean, it's like, what's, what's the current situation? Is their credit drying up? Is it currently under, yes. under evaluation? Yeah, because this is part of the problem with banks. I mean, they took a lot of criticism last year where people were saying, well, look, you know, banks got all this cheap credit, all credit at zero interest rate, and they won't loan it to anyone. And there's an argument that says, well, why would you want to loan it? I mean, you know, because they're looking at corporations, even small businesses right across the board going, we're not sure in long term you're going to be able to, to meet your debt obligations. So they're very reluctant to loan the money. So absolutely, there is uh, this issue of credit drying up. What's also very clear is there's an awful lot of money markets out there going, well, we're going to park some cash at the Fed, but we want treasuries in return on an overnight basis. Well, they want treasuries as collateral because that's one route. If you post something as collateral, you're more likely to get loans. For, you know, so whether it's, But a lot of the loans now, of course, aren't for business expansion. They're just trying to stave off bankruptcy. So, yeah, there is undoubtedly a problem. With, with institutions securing credit. And therefore, as you said, if you have a hand-to-mouth existence, you are going to struggle immensely to be able to say if you, you, you know, you're used to buying goods and settling in 90 days, suddenly you're told, well, actually, that no longer applies. You're not going to get hold of your goods, or it might be raw materials in terms of production. Therefore, that creates either you simply cannot sell goods mm -hmm. or you simply can't manufacture the goods. And therefore, everyone's going, oh, it's a supply chain problem where you can't manufacture the goods. No, it's simply because 
you're not deemed credit worthy enough to be able to buy the raw materials to produce those goods. Yeah, very good. Um, Matthew or uh, V, you want to jump into that, or should we? Are we ready to move on to the next next topic? It's up to you guys. Well, I, I could I could say a word on that. Yeah, um, go for it. Just just to um, I I think that's some of this. Uh, this discussion, which started on the on the question of inflation and even uh, potentially hyperinflation, the question of credit, the availability of credit to the real economy. Um, I think one thing looking at history that I, I find very interesting and very useful to assess some of the, the problems and solutions to the current way of thinking um, is that the, the, the financial oligarchy, because I mean, let's let's just, you know, say it straight. There's a finance. There's a there is a financial oligarchy. Um, one of the the obsessions that they have currently, or that that has created a bit of a problem, is on the one hand there there's a, a drive to nation strip and undermine, get rid of nation states as a governing institution of of political and economic affairs in favor of a unilateral hegemon. Uh, you know the the whole Great Reset is sort of a cover for this, as I think all of the viewers are are aware on varying degrees. But on the on the one hand, while they have this drive to nation strip to crush. Uh, those nation states, especially in the transatlantic, that they've spent quite a, a good number of decades, like seeping their tentacles into, um, and you know, inducing the West, as I've written in a, in a recent article, um, under the Trilateral Commission, especially, and throughout the 1980s and 90s, there has been a program for just uh, massive uh, export of of the manufacturing and productive base. Um, <clears throat> which was really unleashed. We saw this in a virulent way under Volcker, who you know jacked up the credit to stop the so-called stop the uh, the interest rate uh, pandemic of the the 1970s that went up to about 13 percent interest by 1980. And so Volcker's approach was to uh, conduct a controlled disintegration of the world economy. Now he nominally meant that by those terms as controlled control the seizing up of credit to stop the inflation. Now there was, I think, a higher meaning to that, a double entendre that we discussed last week at, with V, um, that was a bit more nefarious. But if you look at all of this, their pro their paradox is that now they have, for the first time, an organized grouping of other nations and and strong national powers with Russia, China, increasingly Iran, the entire Belt and Road multipolar alliance uh, system, taking on and evolving in in leaps and bounds that is preventing them from doing the formula that worked so many times in the past. Uh, so if you look at, for example, you know, the, the three great or big moments over the course of about a decade that I think have value that are all different sides of the same single process was the 1923 hyperinflation of Weimar Germany, which was in many ways a controlled hyperinflation. The, those who put that Versailles Treaty debt Onto, uh, onto Germany after World War I, they knew that Germany couldn't pay. That wasn't news. They, when, they, when they removed Germany's ability to have access to its mining, its, uh, its rails, its, its agricultural production that were, that were seized by the victor nations, it knew that it was removing the ability for Germany to produce wealth that would justify the emission of new debts to pay off the debts to the, the, the victors. It knew that by printing, by unleashing the printing press, it was going to result in hyperinflation and destroyed the economy even more, but it did it anyway. Those who are the architects of it pushed forward anyway, because there was a, a desired effect that they wanted to get. Um, and for a little while, you know, we did see for a few months in Germany by printing money, there was a certain respite in the markets. There was a certain apparent stability, but that was really an illusion. And the effects of that was 
totally disastrous. And it resulted really in a, in a new Shakti and economic program of austerity, you know, a new, a new, a new dollar a new, a, or a new Reichsmark was, was created called the Rentenmark to replace the formerly useless toilet paper money. And there was an apparent stabilization, but not really. I mean, a, a whole new paradigm was put into place in Germany that resulted in the rise of fascism. Um, we, but we had also that just a few years later, a controls pinprick, you know, the day all of the, the broker call loans were, were called in on the same day in yep. 1929. And that pinprick to the bubble, bubbles pop. They knew that a bubble was going to pop. And by having unbounded speculation, especially in real estate in the, in the 1920s in the, the USA, uh, it created a lot of easy money. But the result was the stupidification of the people and of the elite, the rise and consolidation of a power around the JP Morgan, you know, what came to be known as the preferred clients list. And everybody on the know on that clients list was able to get inside information to sell their stocks before the pinprick. And then after a few days, they were able to just buy up pennies on the dollar, all of the businesses, the houses, everybody who had gone bankrupt, who had been, you know, been evicted from their homes because they couldn't pay anything because they didn't have work anymore. All of these these physical assets were all purchased up by the JP Morgan networks. And then the third the third thing, a few years later, after a few years of shock therapy and trauma was induced into the psyche of the American people that spread globally, um, was the 1932-33, you know, London conference that tried to create a solution run by the League of Nations and the, the Bank of England um, for a world economy that would then be reorganized by central bankers who would then say, okay, we just need to get rid of self, the rights of selfish nation states to govern their own selfish affairs and put it into the hands of more responsible, um, enlightened technocrats who could control the levers of, in, of interest rates and credit flows around the world. And, and that will be the new uh, utopia. And thank God it was sabotaged in the, in the, in, you know, the period from March to June of 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt pulled out all of the U.S. diplomats from any discussions. But still, that was a real intention. And all three of those moments were all one thing. And I think today what we're seeing is just th the process has a lot of parallels in its essence. Although today, obviously, we're a world globalized economy. There's more complexity. There's, you know, they didn't have derivatives the way we do today. They didn't have high frequency trading. So they've been able to push this thing a lot further the bubbles much, much bigger by, by orders of magnitudes. But in principle, it's the same thing. It's the same formula. The only thing is back then they didn't have a, a combined power of multipolar nations who were creating a viable alternative back in the 1920s or 30s. Roosevelt did certain things that actually did create a condition later on in 1944-45 where a viable US, Russia, China alternative could have replaced all systems of empire. That didn't happen, Roosevelt died. But still, we, we, we have this interesting parallel of history and, and the same sort of processes at play that I think offer the mind some useful, you know, space to move. Yeah. yeah. One, one thing real quick I'd like to add to this is this. Um, mm. We all know that inflation is a real problem. It's going to get exponentially worse as systems break. There's enough negative feedback loops within the uh, markets, within the um, – within the capital structure itself that you're going to have all sorts of disruptions ahead. Number one, number, number two, one of the things I said years ago, going back to I don't know, 2013 or 14, when I had my radio show, one of the things I said is this, as a nation goes broke, it's security apparatus goes from within looking from without to start looking to enemies from within. 
And what happens is that the biggest competitor to the average American will become his government. And it will be the government because we're in a race for resources. Yesterday, I don't know if anybody caught this, but there was a raid. The FBI did a vault raid. And I kind of laughed and chuckled about this because why anybody would vault anything in the U.S. is, is, is laughable. But there was a vault raid where the FBI seized $86 million worth of private property in a California vault. Hey, v, that, that was from about a month and a half, two months ago. Okay. They, they, uh, just, they just said what they said yesterday was yeah. that they were not going to give it back. Exactly. They're going to keep <laughs> exactly. it, which, so, is, which is stunning. We, exactly. Now, this there's been several raids like this across the country, not just in the Volta aspect of it, but people who they suspect of doing something, right? Well, you're seeing uh, private property and money being taken under the pretext of, uh, I don't know, national security. Are you working for the cartels? Are you a trafficker? Whatever BS, or you haven't paid your taxes, blah, 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 blah. All this other stuff that's going around. This is becoming commonplace, number one. Now, put this, what the FBI just did, put that in the backdrop of what is happening with the Internal Retarded Service, also known as the IRS, Okay. They are hiring 87,000 people, agents, in the next few years, number one. Number two, the recent propositions that were put out there by the cardboard cutout in chief and his administration is that banks should play a role, okay, should play a role in monitoring the flow of credits and deposits going into a business account and report on it. Why? Why? I mean, this goes to if you have an LLC account, you have a corporate, uh, you know, a corporate account, whatever it is, they want to be able to figure out what's going in there. Plus, the hiring of the eighty-seven thousand, you're looking at a, a at a force. Why? Why all of this is happening? Because they understand the game is almost up. They understand that you know what they need to go after as much wealth as possible and extract. This is all the wealth extraction scheme. Why the hell is BlackRock buying twenty-two hundred housing units in Texas? When there's no renters, where people are going broke in many of the areas, there's a lot of properties in Detroit that have, that that are BlackRock owned that have been sitting empty for years. Why are they doing that? It's not the rental income they're interested in, because some people are like, oh, you know, they're, they're going after the they want renters, they want a country of renters. No, they don't even care about that. What's valuable to them is the deed to the property. Why is that? In 2008, we had every every mortgage, or 2007, uh, probably even sooner than that. Actually, no, way before that, like in 2001, 2000, around there. Every mortgage in this country, as soon as you buy a house, and if you bought a house and you got a mortgage, guess what? Your deed to that property is destroyed. It's been digitized, and it's been put on the Mortgage Electronic Registration System, MERS. Huh. And when it goes onto MERS, guess who's the owner of that note? Well, the same owner who happens to own the actual stock certificates of every publicly traded company in the United States also happens to own the actual bond certificates for every single bond in the United States. That is the, that is the Depository Trust and Clearing Commission. It's held in that trust account, which is called Seeding Company. Okay? Seeding Company. I had a, a neighbor of mine. He's like, hey, man, you know, I... You know, I was walking my dog, and one of my neighbors is like, hey, V. I'm like, what's up? You heard about this thing called Seed & Company? And this guy works in finance. He's a, 
you know, he works in um uh, on the on the strategic metal side of things. He's I'm, I'm like I'm like uh, you want to go down that route, bro? He goes, yeah. What is that? Because I he goes, I, I I stumbled into it because I was trying to research where a couple of my stocks who actually who the hell actually owns the stocks that I've that I'm trading on E Trade? Who actually owns it? And he discovered it was a seeding company. So the question is, why are they holding all this crap? Because even though it's empty properties, they are making and leveraging the deed, which they financialized, and then they create a derivative on it, and they make 10, 20, 30, 40 times the return on whatever the value of that property is. It means nothing to them. They don't care if, if it's rented by mouse. They don't care if it's some of the BlackRock properties. I'll show you guys some pictures one of these days. These are dilapidated buildings inhabited by no one, overgrown with grass, but they're trading it because the derivative, remember, we're a fire economy, right? They're trading in the imaginary illusion of something. It's freaking derivatives. They're making a killing on it. They don't care. Why? Because they're, they're trying to prop up and suck as much wealth, imaginary, real or not, out of the system because they know the wheels are starting to come apart. Mortgage applications are tepid. They're the lowest it's ever been. Money velocity is dead. It's the lowest it's ever been. All of these occur because there's so much damn negative feedback loops that are within the capital markets. We're seeing capital destruction on a grand scale, and they don't care because they're going to extract as, well, as much as wealth as possible, and they're going to sick their attack dogs on you, the FBI, the IRS, the SEC, the CFTC, and they're going to make it impossible. There's your competition, folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just to add to that quickly, exactly what happened during the massive wealth transfer between 1929 and 1933, when all of these different houses and buildings and land and farms were bought up pennies on the dollar by the people on the inside who had inside in, in, information, yep. huge wealth transfer, much like we're, we're seeing today. They didn't, once they owned the farmland, did they reactivate uh, the production of the farms? Nope. No. When they owned the homes, did they like invite more people to like live in the homes? No. Nope. When they had the steel mills that were the formerly productive steel mills that went bankrupt, did they like retool them? No. Nope. 50% of American steel went fallow during the Great Depression. It's not like it wasn't owned by anybody. They could have started producing real wealth to undo the inflation, but they wanted, like you said, back then, they just wanted the, the paper. They wanted to still gamble on those assets in real estate, even though it was a depression. There were still moments of of, you know, variability within that process where people were still making money on the markets. But yeah, they didn't care about real value, the real economy. There was no concern whatsoever. So it's just, yeah, same thing. Yeah, but there's right. there's a big fundamental difference this time. Hmm. We don't have, they have, we don't, didn't have in the past the enormous debasement of the currency and, and printing it into hyperinflation. They can accumulate, it's not wealth accumulation, it's paper fiat accumulation which is worthless mm-hmm. unless they transfer it into an asset that actually has any value this is pointless and of course they won't see the reality of this because historically they don't have this precedent yeah and in, in history you can buy up assets you, uh, for cents on the dollar but we're not in the same territory we were in then and, and v does rightly make the point about derivative but derivatives are one of the most poorly understood thing even among in the Fentwick community as to what the reality is with respect to what they are and they're exposed to that the leverage to that is so great that they they are not it's not going to be sustainable and they are going to suffer enormous losses themselves in their arrogance and stupidity because the 
comes back to this point. They don't believe that inflation is anything other than transitory. They don't believe hyperinflation is remotely possible. So, yeah, on their basis, they're going, well, yes, we can accumulate these assets. But it is important not to refer to it as wealth transfer. This is not wealth being transferred. This is paper being transferred from one individual or one entity to another. That isn't wealth transfer in the current climate. That is the, the exact opposite to wealth transfer. Do you, remember, do you guys remember back uh, or the movie uh, The Big Short when uh, early on, before Ranieri made his mortgage-backed security thing, um, uh, what's the name, Goslin said, you know, was doing the narration, he goes, 1970s, banking was boring. You might do savings, uh, savings bond to your kid. You might banking was boring. There weren't the derivatives they have today. There wasn't the financialization that that is today. There wasn't the central bank. I mean, the central bank using fiat currency was new because you know it hadn't really gone into that stretch since 1971. So all of this stuff was just being engineered. Uh, following, you know, really the engineering started in, in the early 90s when. Uh, Greenspan lowered interest rates from seven and a half down to four and a half during the Clinton years, helping to build the dot com bubble. And then, of course, once they started that that road, they couldn't couldn't not stop. And that's when we saw after two thousand one, two thousand three, uh, interest rates going down to half a percent and likewise. So, you know. Banking was, for the most part, boring, uh, and there wasn't this type of games that were being played. Now everything is derivatives, and Paul and I have talked about this. What you're seeing uh, in almost every aspect is they they are so much – there is liquidity uh, issues, yes, but there's so much credit out there that is seeking assets, and there's just no assets. This is why – They create things like derivatives. They create things like futures contracts for cryptocurrency. How in the hell um, the price can be determined on these exchanges for cryptocurrencies by the algorithms that are running the futures contracts and the options play over here at Goldman Sachs or or wherever. That is just mind-blowing how it can affect these things because cryptocurrency price should be strictly by buying and trading the cryptocurrencies, but it's not. You know, so I got into a uh, Twitter pitting contest with somebody. Um, do you think that the the majority of retail investors who are hard at work during the day are sitting there watching when Elon Musk makes a, makes a statement about Bitcoin and Dogecoin, and instantaneously the price goes up or the price goes down? These aren't retail investors who are sitting there watching their Twitter account 24-7. These are algos that are now tied into the cryptocurrency. And if people, yeah. if, if the, the, the Bitcoin evangelists can't get that in their brain, then I don't know what, what I can say to them. You can. The matter is, it's been co-opted by yep. Wall Street, yep. and that's the new price determinant. And exactly. you just better go on the ride. Ken, I'll, I'll provide some detail onto the whole crypto thing real quick from the institutional side. Three years ago, one of the things I said is, like, look, people just jump in uh, at 6,000 because a lot of institutions are at play. You got to have a pragmatic view of it. it. You know, I laugh at these crypto tards who are, who are out there. Bitcoin is the popular revolt against the system. Bitcoin is the system. 
97% of all the Bitcoin supply is, is, is held by less than 3% of the wallets. Okay, that's, that's a fact. All right, you have one of the, 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 the biggest uh, conglomerates within the crypto space, a company called DCG Group. Nobody really knows about them. Nobody knows who DCG Group is. But they own your Coinbase, they own Kraken, they own several, several hundreds of different exchanges and, and platforms. And, I mean, they bought out BitGo, which was one of the most preeminent uh, escrow and custodial uh, service, uh, uh, you know, service companies for crypto. I mean, they own everything. Now, who the hell is DCG Group? Well, it's a conglomerate with vast ties into Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Wells. I mean, you name it, right? So the sharks are already swimming in the pool, okay? And in terms of the stupid Bitcoin price, let me explain something to you guys, right? People are like, oh, my God, look at this. Uh, Bitcoin, $60,000. Oh, my God, it's $30,000. It's $40,000. Let me explain something to you folks, okay? I've explained this once before. What is happening with these exchanges, like what Ken said, it is algorithmically run 24-7 because <laughs> nobody's, nobody's sitting there at a trading desk trading this nonsense at the volumes you see it's being traded. So what you have these exchanges, especially the big ones, right, your Coinbase's, your Krakens, your Hobies and whatnot, right, uh, your Geminis, they're wash trading. They're basically, they'll have 15 different wallets set up that they control on one side. And they'll have 20 some odd wallets set up on the other side that they control. And they're moving the coin algorithmically from one wallet to another wallet, creating this imaginary trading volume. Folks, let me explain something to you. I'm in the process of, you know, we're, we were in the process of, 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 of bringing out an exchange until we realized how much of a pain in the ass the process is, right? And we're going to do it honestly. But one of the things, the options that we were, we, we were, we were asked by some of the developers, like, hey, man, you want to... You want us to link in uh, your, uh, your your trading volume? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, we we just tap into this API that magically gives us a perceived trading val volume for the exchange. I'm like, so you're meaning if somebody were to take a look at our exchange, it would see that we're actually trading tens of thousands of bitcoins per hour per day, but in reality, there's nothing going on. He's like, yes. <laughs> okay. These are the dirty tricks that are happening, all right? And let me explain something to you. I've talked to a lot of people. Like, oh, look, I'm, I'm a crypto millionaire. <laughs> I'm a crypto millionaire. Like, okay. But why are you living in your mom's basement? <laughs> because they can't get to fiat to actually buy something, all right? If you're a crypto millionaire, but you can't go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee with your Bitcoin, what, what use is it, right? It's of no use. It's there for fiat speculation. It's there for it's a wonderful vehicle in order for me to move capital from like Australia to 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 Hong Kong in a in, in a few seconds with very little fees, skirting any sort of banking institution. It's great for doing that, but apart from that world, it's really nothing. Why? Why can't you liquidate your crypto? Well, guess who controls all the liquidation layers? Guess who controls all the on ramps and the off ramps? It's the institutions, and guess who's there? When you try to liquidate through a, 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 a cryptocurrency in the United States and you're a U.S. citizen, well, the IRS is there. And so is their 39.6% tax rate, which is also going to go up higher. And plus the capital gains tax that are also going to be, you're going to be hit with. This is the issue that's facing the country. Are there real cryptographic currencies there, real coins that are actually have real amazing use case scenarios? Yes, but they're hated by the regulators. And they're not, and the, and the exchanges that are in the United States are not allowed to carry them. Case in point, like Monero. Okay, so this whole thing with this this crypto thing that's going on, folks, 
when the dust settles, when the when exceptional stand is done away with and, and, and relegated to the dust heap of history, because you know, you know, we, we everything is awesome and we do stuff, right? When that's relegated to the dust heap of history, and when the Western civilization completely comes to the abject end that it deserves, okay. This whole crypto nonsense, 99% of it won't even be around. There'll be a handful of coins that'll be successful. And there are some coins that actually have technological merits. And you see some, you know, for platform streaming, for invoicing, for things, for actual real use case scenarios. But they're not in any sort of a volume that is going to be some sort of get rich quick thing. So enjoy the hype. This is the modern day tulip revolution. Sad to say it, guys. And as somebody who works on the inside, and one of the clients that I work with is the largest liquidity provider four cryptographic currencies in the world. They, they deal with over um, 40... Uh, they, they're operating over 42 to 43 different countries and 175 institutions globally. Okay? And they they themselves have a pragmatic view of this. So that, that, that's my take. Very well said. Yeah. yeah, very well said. V, if it's okay, can we consider that your topic for, for today's discussion? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> and and then Paul, CJ, I, know I wanted to I wanted to what mention was, something to do with the derivatives market. Yes, to, if you, to if, highlight an Paul, issue. You, what what a lot of people aren't won't be aware of is the extent to which Western, for want of a better description, financial operators have been supporting bond markets. So much so, they created fabricated U.S. bond market demands using interest rate swaps, i.e. derivatives. Bingo. They created bond rallies based on tens, hundreds of trillions of dollars of interest rate swaps. This is why they don't want the yields to break out on the 10-year or or two-year or anywhere. Because if if, uh, if those yields break out, it will blow up the bond markets. If it blows up the bond markets, it will blow up the interest rate swap markets and it will take down the West in two seconds flat. So all this idea that the West's in control of everything and it's all part of a game and they're just moving pieces around, they're not. They have been trying to fight off their date of destiny way before 2008, way before 2000. We're going back into the 19th. And they failed, and every time when they had an opportunity to reflect and make the appropriate changes, they didn't. They failed to do the right thing in 2008. This isn't a game. They are now drinking the last chance saloon. And if you want to put this in context, when you look at the amount of financial products and loans tied to like LIBOR, so that includes interest rates, what? Mortgages, leverage loans. The market is five hundred trillion dollars. Yep. So if you start to have forget, I mean, people focus on the debt level, which of course, if you have rising interest rates, yeah, that is an enormous problem. It starts to raise funding costs, which is going to cause mayhem in the markets. Why? Because you get huge uncertainty in U.S. monetary policy. Suddenly, you get elevated credit risk. CDS is there's another derivative for you. So it starts to cause enormous implosion with regards to, to credit markets. But this is why just a simple matter of if they're now stuck in a position of Fed going, well, we've got a choice. We either suppress the bond, uh, the, the yields because we have to, otherwise the derivatives complex blows up and it's game over. Or we don't do that. 
So what's the consequences? You just end it with a massive increasing inflation for all the reasons we've discussed today. So please, when people keep reading all these grandiose stories about the Great Reset and how the world, how they these technocrats are going to change the world, they're all going to have us running around in AI abs the wheel. I'm sorry, it's nonsense. They are not in control of anything. Everything has been spiraling out of control. I mean, in reality, the United States as an empire was collapsing 100 years ago, virtually. Yep. The, everything since then is not being an empire in, in ascent. It's an empire in decline. And that's why we've had the failed dot-com boom. That was kind of like your green revolution for the 2000s failed, completely failed. Then they had the housing market and all the subprime crisis of 2008, that failed. Then they sat there and went, well, there's nothing we can do. We need to preserve our empire, so therefore we'll just have loads of cheap credit. We'll keep these inflationary bubbles inside Wall Street. And this is why the other myth, to the, the, this planned epidemic in 2000. When that pandemic happened, whatever we believe it to be, it was the end of the, any chance they felt they had of surviving because the bubbles that were in Wall Street and the banks were then in Main Street. This is why we have Main Street inflation. This is why everything's spiraling out of control. And the derivatives markets, and we just highlighted interest rate swaps is one example, is why this could never have been a planned epidemic because they would not have allowed inflation to creep into the main street. Never mind what it does to economies, businesses, corporations, individuals. What it is going to do to the derivatives markets is completely upended. And we talk about the United States is 20 trillion in debt or whatever it is, 22, 23, it doesn't really matter in reality. 28. Or whatever. And we talk about, you know, corporations. More than that if you count debt. unfunded liabilities. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's 250 probably trillion unfunded liabilities. The <laughs> derivatives market, it dwarfs this. Yeah. And this is something they've been trying to manage since 2008. There are banks, and I'm not going to name individual banks because I'm not entirely sure it applies to these banks. But there were banks who had in the past, in, in 2010-11, Western banks, who were so underwater with, with derivatives contracts. They had to be secretly bailed out with swap to the tune of $20 trillion. So this is, the, this is the reality. All this idea of all this control going on. And the World Economic Forum has existed for decades. Name me one thing it's ever done in its history. Nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. It's an annual circle jerk of some of the most yes. debased minds. That's all it is, and as, and as And as someone who knows people who were invited to go there, they said it's a bunch of nobodies talking about nothing yep. who don't actually have any influence. And even the people there find it rather amusing how the old media think they're big movers and shakers in the world. They're not big movers and shakers in the world. That's another one of those old media myths that needs to keeps being populated. We need to start dealing with the reality of this and facing, there isn't any solution to this. There is no, whether whether people think it's a magical solution because Trump was president or somehow the the this uh, the World Economic Forum and their great reset is, is going to, to achieve its goal. They're sat there going, it's game over. We need to do something. The Green Revolution isn't some attempt to try and control the world. It's them going, 
maybe this is a way we can save our empire. Maybe this is a way we can generate this enormous uh, economic boom again. Although I did in my own podcast and spent, four, well, basically 45 minutes breaking down exactly why the whole green revolution is a complete farce. And here's one really small example why that's the case. You can create all the wind farms you want in the world. But here's the problem. You have to extract the raw materials to put in the wind farms. And if you, they say we want to phase out oil and gas. Well, here's the problem. Where do you get plastics from? Oil. What are you going to do with all these spent wind farm turbines after 15, 20 years? You're going to bury them in the ground because they're no, not biodegradable. Paul, even worse than that, where do, where do women get all their makeup from? <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah, well, ex- well, yeah that ex- what about, what about so- toothpaste, toothbrush? I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. Car tires. Everything is – there's, there's thousands of items that are petroleum-based. Thousands. Yeah. So that's just one small example why this is nonsense. It is never going to succeed, and it is rather like the dot-com era where they all came out. There was all this money pumped into it. But All these grandiose ideas. Us, Paul. Electric cars are going to save us, and windmills and solar farms. Yeah, and and, and what they don't realise if they pursue electric cars to the to the degree they claim, what they'll end up doing is stripping the world of all these assets, of all these commodities, like, whether it's lithium, whether it's rare earth metals, all the rest. Of it. They'll kill the supply, so there's none left, and in the end. They'll then go, oh, hang on, we can't produce any more of these goods in the future because right. we don't have any raw re- raw materials left to do this. Right, it's, it's not renewable. Nonsense. It's yeah, not renewable. Yeah, there's no such thing as renewable energy. It's a myth because <laughs> it's not renewable. You're having to take resources out the ground and, and produce goods or produce a wind well, turbine, produce solar farms, electric cars, whatever. It's an yeah, just to say – you can't even produce a windmill, a wind turbine using windmill energy. It's the, the very opposite. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> very good point, Matt. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, you know, th- this is the point we need to start to deal with. This isn't. Has an anyone told Greta Thunberg this? <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I'm getting someone to transcribe the podcast I did, and I'm going to send it to people like her to have a read. Because because the truth is, when you assess what is needed to to produce these, you know, you want to produce electric cars. I mean, the I mean, if you go back to okay, we're not, we shouldn't go back too much in history. But you go back even thirty years ago, and how what materials they used to produce cars. Now, the amount of rare earth metals that goes in every single electric car before long, there's going to be no rare earth metals. So if we end up depleting the world of rare earth metals what are we going to do that we're in enormous trouble so it's so farcical it's so nonsensical forget the 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 reality of whatever people believe climate change is or isn't that is that is not even the point if you allow these morons to do this they will end up destroying all the entire resource base. they'll cause far more environmental damage than fossil fuels could ever create and why is this being sold? Because a lot of it in the West is all these politicians are too frightened to go, actually, well, that's not a good idea because they know their very political career depends on it. So it's just become something where everyone virtue signals about how wonderful it is to do all these things. And that's why in reality, when someone starts to sit down and go, hang on, for every windmill, we're going to have to, how much, 
you know, ore body, we're going to have to drill out the ground to extract whatever we need to put in it. And then we're going to have to repeat the same process 15, 20 years later when it all gets scrapped because these all have finite lifespan. What are we going to do with all the batteries from electric car? And how are we going to produce the electricity to support, you know, I don't know, a billion electric cars globally? It's farcical. It's not reality. And we need to stop worrying about the perception of, of these clowns who people think are still in control. We should be far more worried about the fact they're not in control. They don't have any control over anything. And at some point, we're going to have major problems. Who in our Western societies is going to stand there and go, well, actually, we've got a solution to this. Rather like when Russia collapsed, uh, Yeltsin didn't do anything, but the one thing he did was what was, was meant to Putin. So they had someone who could actually drag Russia out of the, the mire that it was in. We don't have a Putin in the West. No, we don't. We have all these career Don't worry, we have Trump who's coming back in August, Paul. I don't know if you got the memo. Trump is coming back in August. And the White Hats are in charge, Paul. The White Hats and the, and the Crash Helmets. They renamed themselves the Crash Helmets. <laughs> they're, they're in charge as well. But anyway, you know, the, the, enough said. But the point is that we need to, these are the reality. So let's start worrying about how the West is going to handle the fallout rather than worrying about these mythical ideas that there's all these shadowy figures who are somehow controlling us because they're not controlling anything. If they were controlling anything, they wouldn't be doing the things they're doing. They wouldn't be sat there trying to retain relevance and interest. They wouldn't be trying to destroy China and Russia and Iran and the multipolar world if it was no threat. The reason they're trying to destroy it and failing is because when that is fully ascendant, and the West is gone, their empire, what's left of it, and there's not much, will be gone forever. Very well said, Paul. Gentlemen, anyone want to continue that uh, conversation, or should we uh, pivot to another topic of, uh, of one of your preferences? Matt's look like he's ready to, to comment, Matt. Okay, go for it, Matthew. I, I just know time is limited, so I don't want to necessarily uh, deprive everybody of, of having uh, you know their thoughts expressed. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say one thing that I, I like, I feel like when I listen to you, Paul, and I really appreciate your knowledge and insight into a lot of these processes that are that are very mysterious for a lot of people in terms of derivatives, how they, the the game of perceptions is, is managed and all of these things. And, and via also, it's, it's always a pleasure to listen to, to both of you guys. Um, but I would say, though, that the question of intentionality um, historical forces and intentionality driving as causality a process, if it does exist, if it is a discoverable factor shaping processes, then I think it's good to look at that, even though some people might say, oh, that's conspiracy theorizing, thus not not worthy of respect. But if those are if there are active intentions trying to move things in a direction, despite the fact that they might be completely foolish and insane, which I think they are, then why not acknowledge it, too, um, if it's provable, if it's demonstrable? Um, and I, I, I mean, I am of the view, as, as you know, that I believe that there are conspiracy theories for good and for bad um, in history and in the present. And I think that they're they're less than what many people think they are, because a lot of people who think of this think of shadowy forces of an Illuminati controlling the world. And they have like godlike powers. And it's all just a game. This idea that there's like a left versus right in the world or that, you know, it, all sides, China, Russia the U.S. are all controlled by these shadowy Rothschilds and it's all a game to, to screw with the plebes. Now, I don't believe in that at all. Um, I think that ultimately they, there, there are uh, 
a con- there are forces that do have more influence in some ways, and they do have an agenda to reduce the world population is something I think is is quite demonstrable if people look into it um, and to get rid of nation states. I think these are things that are demonstrable. Um, but I also think that they're they're incapable of achieving what they want either. Um, like, I mean, I, if you look at Mark Carney, I just read his new book, um, which is sort of a sales pitch for him being being installed as a prime minister of Canada to replace this gimp uh, Trudeau, who they wouldn't really trust being in public with a with a real leader like Putin or something. They just can't, you know, he's, he's only useful as like a, a thing to to get, you know, middle-aged women to, to wet their pants <laughs> in excitement. <laughs> There's really nothing behind him. And, and so they would like a, a little bit more of a responsible technocrat to be able to manage discussions with world leaders. And a Carney would fit the bill. They 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 got Carney's other Goldman Sachs uh, buddy in in power in uh, in Italy, who also was the head of the the Financial Stability Board uh, right before Carney was Super Mario. Was, yeah, yeah. I mean, this and he's made the point as well. Like you know, get ready for the new paradigm of a green set of values. Both of them have been working very hard at transforming the world economy from being one that valued, you know, the absurdity of of you know. Uh, the free the free markets and derivative contracts shaping in a speculative sort of modality the prices of, of all goods, which they rightfully criticize. If you read their writings going back over a decade, they rightfully criticize this way of trying to define value. Um, but at the same time, they're they're they have both been like leading green priests trying to say we need a, a new set of values around green a green climate compacts, you know, to seize up credit where we will have global international enforcements to stop nations from being uh, climate offenders. And even though they could make a lot more money by allowing banks to issue loans to uh, productive enterprises like SNC-Lavalin or, or mining cartels or, or, or cartels, I mean, but, you know, there's all sorts of, of construction firms that will no longer, if they're pollution offenders on, on Carney's brown to deep green uh, gradient, his 50 shades of green, if you, if they fall too far into the brown side of their uh, gradient, then they're going to be not a, not liable to access loans. They they will have insurance, gr- new new uh, forms of insurance uh, that are going to be far too high for them to even ever pay back those loans. So they will be just as Carney says, uh, you either conform to the new the new paradigm or we're going to take you out of existence. And he says it directly. But he doesn't represent himself. He's not like a lone gunman or something with uh, Draghi. Like these guys are part of a machine that has a certain commitment that wants to rewire value to being passive, where instead of producing actively things to 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 create value um, that's measurable in some way by producing re- things in reality, they want to constrict. They want to put. They want to incentivize monetarily the absence of action. So the idea of, you know creating conservation land, you know, like Biden says by 2035 or 2030, they want to have 30% of the U.S. land totally banned from any development, 100% conservation, and that will have value. People can then, you know, speculate in their fantasy ivory tower world on the values of these passive grounds Um, or putting like, you know, carbon swaps onto Africa or other poor nations to say, okay, look, you can, you could sell your excess carbon credits you because you're going everyone's gonna have a quota and and if you don't use if you don't produce carbon dioxide to reach the ceiling of that quota that that excess of unused uh quota you could then monetize and sell it to to developed countries 
that want to buy it so that they could pollute a little bit more. And you could get more money by not developing, because if you start developing at that point, an industrial base in Nigeria, the way China is really going out helping these African countries develop full spectrum economies, well, then you're going to miss out on a lot of money that you could make otherwise to sort of... So, I mean, this is... One might say this is all just chaotic desperation to keep the system afloat, but I don't think so. I think that their intention has always been to create a bubble insane system and bubbles pop. The tulip bubble was always something you could know was going to pop, just like the, the you know, the John Law bubble of the South Sea bubble of the 1720. They knew that bubbles by their nature pop and you're able to get an effect. Uh, 20, 1929 was one example, but there's others. And I think what they're, they've been doing since 1971 has been a long-term game plan to create a bubble economy so that people don't pay attention to reality in order to get an effect. Um, yeah, which, but the problem is you mm, can't create a bubble economy that's sustainable. And no, when they don't want, no, they it, don't want it. They don't want no, to create but, a bubble economy. Yeah, but, okay, that's sustainable. So what, right, okay. So if they blow everything up, yeah. right. What happens then? What Technocrat happens? Right. Technic what happens? Technic technocratic feudalism, depopulation. A world, yeah. So, it, so you're going to do that to an American nation of 300 million people with 500 million guns? Yeah. And you that's think what want, that's what they want to do? I'm not, say, I'm not saying that they're. I'm not saying that their their policy is genius, but that's what they. No, want. no, no. It's not. It's not even a question. They, of I mean, genius. no, right? But because but, but, the, Paul, the problem Paul, is, every, Paul, they, every... they they want they want a civil war in America. They've always wanted to. It's not an American empire. It's not a British empire. It's something else. It's a financier empire which is above nations, which has wanted to destroy nations from nations from within for a yeah, long time. There a, yes, there's a point in history, but there's a point in history where that does no longer apply. And it doesn't when did that apply. Happen? When, did that, when did that stop happening? When did that not when did it stop, uh, when did that stop one applying? Of the, one of the major turning points was when the people I personally know went to the Chinese and the Russians in the 90s and said, you need to birth a multipolar world. And they went... Okay, yeah, we, we, we agree with this. And that was one of the big fundamental turning points when the world was no longer the way it is. But the idea that they who, destroy everything. Who, who are these people and, who told China and Russia to build a multipolar world? I'm, I'm just curious. I'm not telling you who they no, are. No, I mean, give me an idea. And, and like, I mean, describe it in a loose term without naming names. Well, how do you mean in a loose term? Well, you, I mean, the are best these way to West, Western insiders, Western financiers? Who, it's who not are you? No, it's, okay, like, it doesn't are you, matter. It doesn't matter who well, they very, are. I mean, it's a weird thing to say that they told. Well, why is it weird when they told me everything 15 years <laughs> Who's ago? Who is Would happen. Hang on, hang on. They okay. told me everything that was going to happen in 2010 and, and, and 300 or 500 of those exact things have come to pass. So they're either incredibly good at guessing or they're incredibly visionary in understanding what was happening in the world and what changes were happening. So the issue is, yeah, you can say they'll create neo-feudalism, but what are they going to do with the population, the people? I mean, everyone always goes, <clears throat> yeah, what they'll do is they'll destroy everything and they'll put everyone on permanently on universal basic income. Well, you can do that for a short period of time. Then you create Weimar Germany. So when the average American's paying $20 for a loaf of bread and they have no money, they're not going to sit there and go, well, I'm quite happy with this. This is not a reality. This was never a reality. Rather like the one world government, it was never a reality. It was never going to happen. And it's just now become an established fact that all these things were going to happen. But why are you, are you, are you saying that, are you saying that the multipolar world was a creation of a formula that was put 
that was put to China and Russia by foreign Western interests of some way. That's why they're do- that's why they're doing it. Yes, that's exactly why they were doing it. It sounds because, like a conspiracy theorist here. I don't. Hang on, hang on. How, how am I a conspiracy theorist when everything <laughs> I was told has played out in reality? This is not a guess. This has happened. They said everything that would happen mm, in very broad right. terms, but okay. that has subsequently happened. How's that? How's that a conspiracy when it's actually happening? You right? Anyone who's listening who subscribes to my podcast will tell you I have detailed everything for the last five plus years nearly six years, all the events went that they were going to happen in the future. Now, why? So am I good at guessing? Am I just extremely good at guessing what's going to happen in the future? That's not a conspiracy theory. That's a fact. There are conspiracies. No one's disputing this. There are dozens of real conspiracies that go on in this world and have gone on for longer than we care to remember. But there's an awful lot of conspiracy theories that don't stand up to scrutiny in reality. So the idea they create a technocratic or neo-feudalism is completely contrary because all these big corporations depend on all of us functioning in their world. So we they make enormous amounts of profits because we buy all their goods and services. So what we're saying is all these big corporations with all these rich entities are all going to go, we're going to sacrifice all that for some greater good, and we're going to destroy our own empire. We're going to destroy our banks, all our corporations, and then we're basically going to have a bunch of people living as neo-feudalists with 500 million guns. And someone actually sat there and went, that's a good idea. No chance. No, they're, uh, not, they're not going to sacrifice their empires yeah. willingly just for some greater cause, because that well, again implies there is this group of people controlling everything. There isn't. There's entities and spheres of influence, banking, finance is an obvious one, corporation, who will cooperate and work together, but they're not going to stand there and go, we'll just destroy our empire for some great well, here, good. Paul, here's the thing. The thing is this. Do, like, <laughs> ah, let me put it this way. I like cars. All right? I like to go mm-hmm. fast. And right now I'm working on an eight-second car. So, what I do is I get along with other gearheads, and us gearheads get together and we conspire on how to shave off uh, a tenth of a second here and a tenth of a second there, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing that at such a low level, okay, there's always going to be people at very prominent positions of power in roundtables and think tanks and groups, and they have all these meetings, and I make fun of them as a bunch of circle jerkers. But the fact remains that there are billionaires conspire with other billionaires to to carve up the world, okay? Uh, a world to them that has no borders, that has no culture, where they themselves are the, the plutocrats that are established, the oligarchs that are established at the very tip-top, tippy-top of this whole entire thing, ruling and, 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 and whatnot. Now, in terms of America, there, yeah, there's, five, there, there's hundreds of millions of guns here, granted, right? What would they do to America? Well, America is a very, very rich resource-rich land and organization, right? I mean, it's got tons of natural resources, right? What they would do to America would be the same thing they did in Syria. It'd be the same thing they did in Iraq. It's the same thing they did all over the Middle East because the point is the chaos. Chaos makes it easy to grab resources. They look at the U.S., 300 million useless eaters, okay? And I sat around, Paul, and I sat with a couple of guys from Goldman, a few guys from JPM, 
And I sat in a roundtable group, and I said to and, – and there was a question, not posed by me, right, but posed by a few individuals. And the question was, what would an economic collapse in the United States – what would that actually look like? Well, here's what it looks like. It looks like 20 – it looks about close to 27 million dead in about 90 days. Because when you have a complete breakdown where nothing – ships can't move, planes can't move, trucks can't move, you have a supply chain shock – Majority of Americans who are already the most over-medicated population on God's green earth will die from starvation, malnutrition, dehydration, lack of medication, and violence. That creates the perfect environment for them to go ahead and do their land grab. There's a reason why they're pushing for more and more of federal land to not be developed. There's a reason why. There's natural resources there, right? Now, these guys are planning on doing this right they're, they're planning on in the sense of when you look at this pattern that hey you know what i can't develop here i can't develop there they're locking up the resources they're overheating the economy one of the guys that i spoke to that was a good buddy of mine he ran the nuclear end of this entire country he was working with an nrc the nuclear regulatory commission and he was telling me that dude it's like it, it's everybody coming up right now in the nrc in the nuclear regulatory Com uh, committee everybody has what's called a run to fail mentality and it's problematic not only through the bureaucratic classes that are in the United States and politicians, but it's also evident within the corporate structure. The corporate maniacs that are in this country, your Amazon, your Bezos, your, your the, the, the morons from Apple and Microsoft, these people think they're going to be at the sitting at the top of the table managing this global plantation, not a global plantation, excuse me, but this plantation in the United States, which will be a failed state. It will be like a Mexico. It will be probably even worse, right, like in Iraq. They like sectarian violence. They like balkanization. They like the chaos because it makes it easier for them to get the resources. Now, why are they asking for the resources? Because the paper markets are, 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 are overheating. It's becoming worthless. They can no longer push their wares on the rest of the population of the entire world. And they realize they can offshore. Look, there's people that are in control of Google and Apple and all these corporations and Ford and whatnot. They can make more money selling it to the rest of the world. Yeah, but here's the point. Yeah, but here's the problem with that. If the U.S. becomes a nation like that, the rest of the world will just isolate them or won't buy any of their goods. Because you know what they'll be far more worried about? Here's a U.S. Here's a nation with an enormous nuclear arsenal. But oh, but 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 we're still going to buy your goods and trade with you while you've got this totally dysfunctional nation with an enormous nuclear arsenal. The United States, if it ends up that way, will become the North Korea of the 21st century until there's a point when the rest of the world goes, how are we going to deal with these as a nation? Yeah, that's going to so, be a problem. It's, but it's not, but therefore it's not a reality that they were ever going to consider this as an option because ultimately it will not succeed. You cannot create, you could create feudalism in the past for sure. You cannot create feudalism in Western nations not sustainable it won't last you, five minutes you're, you're giving you're giving them too much credit paul like the your idea of what empires do it, you're giving them too much credit like you're saying because it won't work they wouldn't do it and it's like you're, you're assuming that they're too smart if they're anything or if they're or no, if it I'm is not, no <laughs> I'm not assuming they're anything. I'm not that. that I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm saying your your idea of, of what a yes, conspiracy but, is yeah, is the, naive. It's like it, it's not the case that that conspiracy. Sorry, don't, I'm what? 
it's naive. I'm not saying dumb. I'm saying sorry, naive. What? Sorry, what is naive? Your assumption of what conspiracies are is a naive theory of conspiracies. So you understand everything I've ever said about conspiracy theories in my life, and you're well, you you tell well, me you what just, conspiracies I've ever discussed or not well, discussed to make that your, your idea of a conspiracy that you think you're refuting is that it must all work. It must all be absolutely no, under control I'm or that. else if no, it's not if there's no, chaos then it no, couldn't be a conspiracy not. it must it must be out of control and not a conspiracy. no i never said that conspiracies don't exist that have failed i can give you a whole list of them ukraine belarus cuba syria nicaragua yemen we can go on and on and on azerbaijan and armenia and that's just in the last few years we had the 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 arab spring i this isn't a question of them legitimately from their perspective trying to invoke conspiracy or some sort of attempt to to do whatever they want to do whether it's internationally or domestically well, my point is they would never they they have done everything right to preserve their financial system for over 20 years and now we're suddenly led to believe they're going to abandon all that throw it all into the dust into the dust bowl of history and now they're going to grab some other idea of how they're going to uh, implement Why some more insane policy in the future. No, not... they, bro, they, they don't care about this land. They don't care about the people. No, no, it's, about... not a, it's not even a question of It's a larger about market overseas. Yes, it's but they're not going to have market. any access to that market because the rest of the world... The rest of the world is pragmatic. The rest of the world is like, hey, you, you, United States of America, you're, you're a basket case. You're, you're a failed state. But you have resources. We'll trade with you on the resource. We don't care about your internal uh, quibbles and quabbles. They won't. Do, no, they won't. It's going to be that. like Colombia in the in the seventies and eighties, Paul. That's what the United States is going to turn into. It's they won't like do Columbia. it because if you've got a dysfunctional nation with nuclear weapons, you're not going to start trading. You're going to make it so you squeeze but that it's nation. It's not so the, the American public that left. controls the nukes, Paul. It's going to be the military, which are strictly going to be in control of the oligarchy. So, so hang on, we've got the military in charge of, of a bunch of lunatics who've destroyed America. No, no, I, no I said the military is, they're in control of the oligarchy. So they all, they're, they're, the military is there to get a paycheck. Now, they're going to have some nukes. So what's going to happen? I think a lot of these nukes are going to be disbanded. Most of them are obsolete, can't, don't even work. But they're going to find some way to, to either sell them off, deconstruct them, reprocess them or something. That, and, and again, I'm talking worst case scenarios here. I'm talking about America going to what does a failed state look like? What does an economic collapse look like? 27 million dead in, in, in 90 days. It, it, there's it's the, look, there's no, no dispute in what the, the effects will be of a complete collapse, whether it's the United States, whether it's the United Kingdom or the European Union. Of course, it's going to be catastrophic. But, but the idea that they're intentionally collapsing everything they've spent the last 20 years trying to, to preserve... Why they're doing everything Paul, they can they to try They already have everything they, you're talking about preservation, Paul. They already have it. They've preserved have, everything they needed to preserve. They have what, though? They, they have the land, Paul. They have the land rights. They have the mineral rights. They have the resource rights. They control the, the, the rails of yes. commerce. They have all that. They don't need but, 300 million Americans. Yeah, but the point is the world, the world will not do anything with them. Who says and that? Also you, the, you think the Chinese... How, if China can no, do no, business with Djibouti, if China can do business with Djibouti, 
if China could do business in Yemen, if China could do business with factions in Libya, they don't care about a couple of American factions. It's just another day business. Oh, no, they, they absolutely... What, what a, a thing that's threatened to assassinate their president, has threatened to try and destroy China's economy, has tried to uh, basically topple the entire nation with things like Xinjiang, and they're going, and they're going to turn around and go, well, we'll forget all that. We'll just we'll trade with you because suddenly you've got an abundance of resources that you can't finance. What they they'd end up having to just print money to extract all this stuff because no one's going to buy their debt. Well, nobody's going to so, buy their debt. The, the debt has so, to be so, canceled. So therefore, you go into whatever population you have left, whatever whether it's three hundred million or whatever people perceive it to be, what you're going to end up then is is a population starving to death because they can't afford to feed themselves. So. Yeah. And that, and you, you think that that's going to be a sustainable model, and the rest of the world's going to no, go. There's no, no, that's yeah. not that's not the model. That's not the end result. That's going to be part of the process. The United States is going to fall apart. There's going to be starvation. There's going to be some breakdown of society, and that's going to be for a couple of years until something emerges. And I think what's going to emerge on the other side is going to be something that's going to be um, restructured and rebuilt, utilizing the help of the international community. But the, the but these oligarchs that are here. They want to be in the positions of power to, to uh, best extract for themselves and for their own profits what that reconstruction looks like on the other end of it. Yeah, but here's the problem. All these oligarchs, for want of a better word, but it's a useful description, are all at each other's throats at the moment. Oh, they are, because why are they, why are they at each other's throats? Because they've already shored up what they needed to get. They've already No, they're everything. at each other's and throats because there's some who want to destroy the banking sector. There's some who want to destroy corporations, and they're all sat there going, "Hang on, you know, you're not, you're not going to basically strip me of, of my perceived whether whether right. it is." They're, they're fighting for a place at the table. Well, can, can I? Well, it's not I... even they're fighting for their own survival, and they're eating each other alive. And, and that's why the political system is is become so obviously just totally dysfunctional in the U.S. because they're well, eating well, themselves billionaires alive. Billionaires don't so, kill billionaires, man. They don't do that. That's too systemically shocking for the system, right? So what they're doing right now, it, it, this is like, uh, it, this is almost to them, the, the, it's like WWF. They're jockeying for position. They're they're fighting for room at the table, but they don't want to. They don't want to kill the other guy. Like Bezos don't want to kill Gates. Gates doesn't want to kill Bezos, right? Yeah, but here's the point. It's like everyone goes. Well, you know, it's like. One of the statements that were made about Amazon, look, you know, we've had the pandemic, all the small businesses are going to survive and are being destroyed and Amazon's surviving until I have to point out to people that Amazon's business model depends on small businesses surviving for them because they're basically a reseller who takes a cut on top and makes profit. So that immediately destroys the argument. Mm -hmm. If you destroy all the small businesses, Amazon is gone. It will no longer exist. Amazon makes no money on the retail side, Paul. They do jack shit on the on the retail side. Their money is in web services. They've made no money on retail. They've lost money. Yeah, but, on retail. Okay, yes, but yeah, they're going for market share. If, Why? Right. If you destroy the entire Western and create neo feudalism, they'll make no money on web well, services. Neo feudalism is a is, is right. A, is Here's a the point. Term. We it's don't, not the correct we term don't, that right. I would use, but it's, it's if a we don't buy term. any of their services, all they all go bust. No, they'll just sell it elsewhere. The whole West, the whole Western model depends on us believing that this, you know, we don't like governments and we get rather pissed off with what they do, but we think we're doing okay out of it on some level. Well, most people do and, mo and others don't. So what we're going to do is 
We're going to actually destroy that myth, even though it is a myth, and we're going to take everything off everybody, and then everyone's just going to sit there and go, oh, well, that's okay. I don't mind you destroying everything. It's not a reality. And well, Paul, they're not destroying. You. See, you're looking at it, they're destroying. No, 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 bro. They are creating. They're creating, Paul. Creating destruction. Right. It's they're their create- vision, right? It, it, it's what they're <laughs> total surveillance. Total security apparatus, the biggest hiring and employment is going to be the government in the next couple of years in the United States. Most of it is going to be on the security side of things. Like I said, we're going into a, some sort of a techno, techno uh, uh, Columbia back in the, uh, in the 80s. It's going to be, you know, you're going to have narcos <laughs> running wild. Look Amazon, does, Am- Amazon, Amazon yeah. does host the CIA servers. Yeah. So look, look, look at Argentina. Argentina is ruled by warlords. Nobody knows yeah, it. Yeah, and it's and you know why it's allowed to exist? Because it doesn't have a big nuclear arsenal. If you have right. a big nuclear arsenal, everything changes. You can't you can't trust a a, a failed state with nuclear weapons to that level. The world would go, we cannot allow this to happen. Yeah, because that's... you're risking the very okay, yeah, we know the nuclear arsenal's well pre- precarious at best, but that's not the point. The point is you couldn't have a nation the magnitude of America turned into a complete failed state. Well, intentionally, Paul, it's not. It's not, it's not it wouldn't. Fit. You couldn't allow it to happen. No, and I'm the not rest of the Mad world Max, is Paul. not going to allow it to happen. But Paul, I'm not talking about Mad Max, right? So yeah, but that's new, what it will become. No, Paul, Paul, you, you we could they they can t- you know walk and chew gum. They have they're they're creating by destroying, and guess what? They will have complete and total control of the nuclear arsenal. They understand the command control structures will be in place. Why? They are negotiating the complete restructuring of the debt and the bankruptcy of the United States. That's what they're going to be doing. So they're going to have negotiating with who? Yeah, they'll be like, hey, hey, G, you know what? We we try to kill. They're not going. The Chinese are not going to. The Chinese are not going. Why Why not? Chinese. Chinese are very pragmatic, Paul. You and I both know that. Yes, but put it this way, if China does negotiate something with the United States, the United States will pay an enormous price for that. Oh, they will. But they'll have access to the oligarchs. The plutocrats will have access to the Chinese markets. They'll start selling to the Eurasian continent, right? So the the, the plutocrats will make sure that the military-industrial well, complex... Well, okay, okay. So, so now we're going to create a manufacturing base in in the United States to sell goods to the rest of the world. Well, that's not... Well, the in, New York, in upstate New York, there's a place... That's already been quartered out. It's a factory, already retooled, already sitting idle, and it's it, it, it's a Chinese owned factory. There's also Chinese well, yeah, China owned China factories in part and owns more of the United States than Americans. Exactly, would, so the, the factory would want to know. The, the factory position's there, and that's for Americans to go to work in when this whole thing is said and done on the other side of things. Yeah, but that's a, that's an entirely different. Yeah, but that's an entirely different vision. Than this dystopian world where they're going to have massive population reduction. And no, it, it, will be a, it, it will be a significant reduction when you see the in, in 90 days the, the, the catastrophic loss of life. And I'll be honest with you, it's, it's, it's not good or evil. I think it's, it, it's just going to be happening because that's, the, that's just, just, just the way the, the systems are in place here. Oh, Matt, you well, want yes, to say something? Whenever, Matt, whenever Matt, Matt Empire collapses, well, unfortunately, okay. that happens. Well, uh, <clears> but that's not um, necessarily some intentional design to do that. It, because uh, here's the thing, it, you can't control yeah. the one thing you cannot do, and it doesn't matter whether you think you can control it, you cannot predict the outcome of 300 million Americans or 70 million British people 
How are they going to react if you implement certain things intentionally? Well, that, that, that'll, be a, that'll, that'll be a conversation we should definitely have uh, on, an, on another show. Let's let's yeah, re, let's she, let's uh, let's go to Q and A. Matt, you want to say something real quick? Then we'll go Q and A. Got like thirty I, seconds. I, I just to get off my system, I guess. Uh, I I'd recently done a, a study on Christia Freeland, who's also a. Uh, you know, she's a a trustee of the World Economic Forum with Karin, and 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 it's a it's a study of some of her writings before she became uh, a member of the government of Canada, and she was still working for Reuters. You know, she's still a Rhodes Scholar working for Reuters and and all these things. And it's called Plut- uh, plutocrats versus technocrats, and it's it's useful because she's in it 2011, 2012. She's writing these essays and writing these books after getting you know she's got the inside track with. George Soros, all of these, she's like, yeah, I just happen to know all of these, like, you know, Ukrainian oligarchs, and they give me, you know, their their time and Russian oligarchs, and they give me their time, and they, she's got these, like, great exclusive interviews with everybody and Larry Summers and everybody. Um, but she makes the point, and it's a, it's a direct threat saying that when we come to a breaking point, this is going to break, uh, you'll, there's good plutocrats and bad plutocrats, and she, she defines over chapters what the glut, good plutocrats are, those who made their wealth and fortunes over the, the past 35, 40 years of deregulation. And those the good ones are the ones who are going to be on things like the giving the giving pledge, um, who are working uh, with the technocrats. for, And the bad ones are going to be the ones who want to just keep making their money. And they're the ones who are not going to accept the new, the new regulation that we have to bring online. And she's talking about this in 2011 in her book. Um, and the bad ones are the polluters, the ones who refuse to decarbonize. The good ones are going to be the ones who, who go along with the new ethic. And uh, she names who the good ones are. She gave she gives examples of George Soros, of Buffett, of, you know, of she actually like outlines Bezos and others. Um, and so, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of of evidence that gets at this intention, albeit even if this is an insane intention that has no bearing in the fact that Russia and China have rejected the Gorbachev Zhao Ziyang agenda, you know, Zhao Ziyang was the Gorbachev of China. They wanted to get China already subdued a long time ago and China had their own fight in the eighties. They luckily woke up and kicked out George Soros because Zhao Ziyang, the, the, you know, the chairman of the, the CPC, CCP in the 19 from 87 to 89, he, he had a, a think tank with George Soros. He was infusing all of these Western economists and M- Milton Friedman and everybody into the, the Chinese elites. Um, and they, they kicked him out. They gave him, they put him into house exile till he died and they kicked out all of the Soros, uh, lackeys. So they were smart. Um, they said no to that. And Russia was not so smart at the time. And they went with Yeltsin and Gorbachev and perestroika and they had, they got their ass kicked, but luckily, you know, you, you had in the late nineties, some smart people around, you know, Zhang Zemin and and Primakov who uh, didn't want to their nations to go down in a hail of of fire, and they reorganized something new. And I, I mean, Christia Freeland is very clear. As are many of these writers, like people who play a certain role as upper level management, they have a certain ideology and agenda that, and they're throwing threats directly out at one section of the elite that was useful. They made wealth during this unbounded pirate age of globalization. Or you know, survival of the fittest, each against all. And now the time has come where they have to either adapt to the new standards or disappear, like Carney says in his Fifty Shades of Grey. Adapt or disappear. Um, so, I mean, it's a mess. I'm not trying to say that it's like all 100% controlled or anything, but there, if there is a, a discoverable principle, and maybe we could have this as another show, because I know we want to yeah, get on to Q&A. Do some Q&A. Yeah, let's, yeah. Anyway. 
All right. Um, I want to afford Ken real quick. Uh, I, I know that we want to jump into Q&A, but Ken, I think a couple of times you tried to try to jump in there. Ken, did you have anything real quick? And then and then that'll be it. Yeah, a couple of things. You know what? The fact of the matter is, is I used to be big into looking at a lot of the conspiracy theories. And the reality is, yeah, you've got those like Soros who were working for whatever agents uh, he made his wealth by selling his soul to uh, certain individuals and certain entities. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is what they've done more than anything has destroyed the culture of Western, Western, uh, United States and Europe. Uh, if you take a look at it, uh, the relationships, um, the, the divisions, everything along those lines have been absolutely broken. And to tell the truth, that's why nothing is really going to, I mean, sure, you might have some individuals like, sitting in their ivory towers thinking that they're going to rule the world at their cocktail parties. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're in a frequency shift and nature supersedes anything man's going to try to do uh, in the long run. Uh, so, you know, yeah, if you take a look at it from three different aspects of conspiracy theories, definition of conspiracy is uh, multiple people doing something in secret for nefarious reasons. It can be two, could be a thousand it doesn't matter that's the three criteria for a conspiracy victoria newland george soros and the maidan coup was conspiracy um the pandemic was not a conspiracy but what they did to try to use it for their own benefit was a conspiracy propping fauci up all this other shit okay um but it's gonna it's it didn't really succeed it didn't really fail you had uh, certain strong strong people in certain states that stood up and those that uh, decided to continue with the lockdowns their states are their states are done they're bankrupt they're they're toast okay so you do in short term create some chaos that brings about destruction but this overall unless you're talking supernatural and spiritual and god versus lucifer type things of taking the whole world it's not going to happen it's not going to work it's it it didn't even do it in roman times it didn't do it any other times okay that's what i just want to say about this yes there are conspiracies yes there are certain people who would love to see love to rule the world but the fact of the matter is is it's not been done from day one unless you count Babel when everybody spoke the same language and had the same accord but since then it's never worked and they can do anything they want to do but n nature and, and cycles are going to either, you know, make sure that it doesn't uh, facilitate completely or it breaks up after a certain amount of years. So that's just my okay. All right. Very good. And gentlemen, obviously very fluid discussion, which, you know, obviously we can have some uh, conversation, uh, you know, uh, later on after this. But I do want to give the people tuning in opportunity to ask questions. It looks like uh, we did have a, a couple of pop up here. Let me scroll back to them. I probably should have plan in advance and had them uh, emailed in. Uh, one of the first questions that came in was from Ronan, food is a powerful way to control people in large populations with so much of the farmland being bought up, like with the likes of Bill Gates, should we expect more uh, price rises and shortages of food? So um, yeah, anyone want to jump into that one? Yes. The, you know, it's pretty interesting. McDonald's is the biggest buyer of the wheat that comes out of uh, Gates's uh, field. So, McDonald's 
ha- also happens to be um, one of the 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 great feeders of America. And I mean, you go to any any part in the in the country, they're you know in the lowest of, of income neighborhoods to everything else in between. So yeah, I, I think uh, it's it, it, food is a great control mechanism, and I think also that coupled with the with uh, the inflation that's here, uh, prices will skyrocket. There could be some significant supply chain issues that center around food. And that's my thought. Awesome, thanks, V. Uh, next question is: Both recent China and Russia have been pushing Pakistan to not give USA any bases as they leave Afghanistan. What do you think about Pakistan and its future with Russia and China? Good question. Well, the CPEC is enormous. I mean, and it's only going to grow in terms of Chinese investment in Pakistan. I mean, Russia's involved. Russia's interest in Pakistan are obviously significantly different from China's. China's isn't totally economic. It's also, there's a vested interest in that region to resolve Afghanistan for obvious reasons. So that affects that region and China has an interest in that, not from a political perspective, but also there are some military and security considerations. The issue of the US wanting to put a base or base, excuse me, in um, Pakistan because they are apparently definitely leaving Afghanistan, which is going to raise some interesting questions as to what happens with the opium trade as a result of that, because the US doesn't get the money from the opium trade. Its economy will collapse in 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 the blink of an eye. Uh, of that, there is absolutely no doubt. That's the whole purpose of well, one of the purposes of two thousand and one was an excuse to go into Afghanistan so they could seize control of opium trade because the U.S. economy was was on the verge of collapse. And you can look at all the metrics of what subsequently happened in two thousand and two. Um, but yeah, it's Pakistan's one of those nations that you know it's. It's kind of, it's not, it, you could arguably say it was a vassal state of the US at one point. It certainly isn't there. Um, and it, there is a degree of resistance of the US putting a base there for obvious reasons because they don't want Pakistan, uh, the United States launching drone strikes or whatever on Afghanistan because they, they, it's going to end up backfiring on Pakistan itself. To, and we all know, obviously, the, the far west of Pakistan, and, and hence there's there's tribal lands there with the Taliban, etc. And it's uh, they don't need any more grief than they're already having. So, yes, it's very much part of the Belt and Road. And Chinese investment is is barely started, even though it's probably seventy billion dollars plus already. But and Russia has some some sort of trade to uh, to some degree with Pakistan, but. Uh, but militarily, there will certainly be coordination with Pakistan in that region. I mean, because obviously we just have to look geographically where it's located. And obviously there are concerns that <laughs> spill out from Syria and Afghanistan could end up in, I mean, the, the obvious case is Xinjiang, which is what the West tried to stoke up years ago and, and start terrorism there so they could hide Xinjiang off. Because, yes, that is true. They have enormous resources. There. That's why they wanted the region. But obviously that's failed. So, yes, there are some military reasons uh, why it's of interest to both China and Russia. But a lot of it's purely just economic. And just, just look at its position in in relation to the Middle East and uh, alone. And also what might be t- described as West Asia, I guess, effectively. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, Paul. 
Glenn asked uh, the question in regards to uh, whether or not you think that the, the average person, um, maybe middle income, low income, whatever, should be actually holding physical gold, uh, silver, knowing that what's coming economically, uh, gentlemen. I think it's especially. And the fact of the matter is, is after 2008, um, if, you know, I don't know how much more probably all of us could preach um, owning gold and silver because it's wealth protection. It's not a matter of investing. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a matter of wealth protection. And if you knew that uh, Dodd-Frank was going to suddenly change deposits in the bank to liabilities and they could uh, rehypothecate at any moment, or if you have, uh, um, did we get cut off? No, nope. no, no. We hear, we hear. Oh, no, you know, you're live. Okay. Uh, if we if, if they could rehypothecate any moment, and if we knew that the central bank was going to start uh, uh, pretty much dominating markets and monetary policy, as a matter of fact, to the point where uh, Chuck Schumer comes out and says that uh, Bernanke, get to work. So all of a sudden the central bank was going to take care of fiscal policy as well, then you should have, you know, had the idea that uh, inflation devaluation and the like was going to uh, come about with, with our currency and the need for something to um, uh, protect that wealth was absolutely vital. So yeah, um, you know, for me, I'll give an example. I keep very little money in the bank any additional money I have, I put into gold and silver because that's my savings. If I need to buy something that's beyond what I have in the bank, I sell some and I make the purchase. But I store my savings in gold and silver and just use fiat dollars to pay for my bills and whatever stuff. Very well said. Thank you, uh, Ken, for that. And uh, gentlemen, I want to uh, make sure to give everyone opportunity for closing uh, comments. Uh, we have a hard stop coming up at 1 p.m. Uh, let's reverse the order. Again, I think it's important to give every uh, contributor an opportunity for their closing comments. Uh, we'll reverse, reverse the order this time. So we'll uh, start with uh, Ken and then Paul, Matt, and V. So uh, go for it, Ken. Yeah, I think uh, over the last year uh, with the lockdowns, with uh, what certain states have done, what certain other states haven't done, um, the migration, uh, what's going on now, uh, especially uh, as I truly believe, a rush towards the end of the uh, dollar and its reserve currency status, if not both. Uh, the most important thing for people to do is to um, take a look at you know where they're at, their local areas, their families, etc., and realize that uh, the road that has been has been picked up since we started 2021, even going back to last year. It's not going to end well, and all you have to do is take a look at uh, the rioting and destruction, the divisions that have been created amongst the peoples, men and women, blacks and whites, uh, Democrats, it doesn't matter. The, the, America and all its core things have been shattered. Every single institution in the United States is corrupt everything there's no reforming it there's no going back it's going to get raised to the ground in some capacity before it has the opportunity to be rebuilt and so that's where we need to keep our eyes open and uh, take a look at, at uh, what's truly occurring pragmatic view not hope and change not any other type of 
uh, crap that you might get from certain members of the alt, alt media or from uh, the media itself. We just realized we are in a transition and there's no point in putting a time frame on it. We're just in the middle of it now. Thank you for that. I can appreciate it. Paul, go for it. Yeah, I think basically the the only the only real thing to add to what we've discussed is this is a once in two thousand year history of a cycle of what is coming. There is no precedent for it. It has never happened in history before. We we cannot make an, an evaluation as to what has happened previously because the entire global financial system is totally different and is unprecedented compared to previous events. The entire way the world interacts and is interoperable, how it trades, okay, we have fake globalization and we have real globalization, which is the multipolar world. The, the world operates in an entirely different way than what it did previously. We can, So therefore, we have to make the, the qualified judgment that what we're seeing and the changes we're going to see are unprecedented. I've said this before. This is more than a change in the financial system and economies. This is a fundamental reboot of humanity. And that, when I said because, because I said that once and someone went, so you do think we're going to end up as, as AI, transhuman and humanism, or we're going to, no, I don't mean that. What I mean is this is that fundamental change. And there are certainly things with regards to Russia and China that people aren't aware of on a level, why the relationship is the way it is between Xi and Putin at this point in time. And also, I am, I'm going to have to make this point, and it is extremely important. I do know the architects at the RISA. I know them extremely well. We've had discussions with them for many years. They have been completely accurate in terms of what has happened and I don't want that to be referred to as a conspiracy theory because that, in, in essence, undermines everything I have done for six years, which was I was asked to go out and explain to people the reality of what was unfolding. And I'm sorry I have to say that, but I didn't ever expect to ever have to say that. Paul, thank you for that. Uh, Matthew? Well, I can uh, definitely... Uh, back the uh, the sentiments that uh, Paul just raised and Ken as well. The uh, the fact that we are living through a massive shift, unlike anything humanity's ever seen before, is something people should really take into themselves and think through and situate their their subjective identity into a broader process. Um, there's lessons to be learned. All great crises present opportunities for lessons and insights that normally, under times of comfort and apparent stability we would not normally have access to. So I think that when you look at the, the principles organizing the concept of value, the idea of future economics, law, self-interest of the multipolar alliance um, on the other side of the world, uh, there are truths that are being tapped into which provide the basis of our own survival as well. Uh, since the two futures sort of, I think, pulling on us in different directions are either a renaissance, we could have some of the most beautiful aspects of human, the best of human society from various cultures become revived, the best of the West, the best of the East. Um, we could we could see those those things coming to the fore as a new form of self-organization and interrelations of international law. 
um, as well as just working on big projects together in involving all sorts of things that involve our, a better future for our children, our grandchildren, and, and those beyond. We know that Russia and China are, are doing amazing, amazing breakthrough things on Arctic development, on space development, uh, jointly building a lunar base. Uh, there's there's work going through helium-3 mining of the moon. Um, all of these things that, that really... Uh, are a treat for the imagination and the and the creative powers of, of scientific of the scientific mind of humankind, right? But then you have this other dark age uh, ethic, this this other uh, series of traditions that have no bearing in the future. Um, that's a, at least not the future that's worth living in. So, I think that seeing this as an opportunity to realign ourselves, rather than seeing Russia and China as our enemies, which there's many many psyops currently underway all over the place, where we all encounter it to try to uh, focus our idea of China and Russia as the enemies of the Western liberal civilization, they're actually, that's the medicine. That's, we're, we're, <laughs> we're a basket case uh, on the verge of death. And our, our pathway to life is through working with Russia, China, and other nations who want to have a future. And, and so many people are, are becoming mentally castrated by just seeing them as the cause of Western election frauds yep. or hacking, cyber hacking of, of the Western way of life or uh, the releasing of Wuhan labs, viruses to destroy Western civilization, all this stuff. So it's absurd. People need to inoculate themselves from this type of, of false information and, uh, and think on a, on a higher level. So I would just end it with that. Very good. V, go for it. Absolutely. I will say this. Um, never underestimate the power of bureaucracies to break things, to mess things up, and to never again fix them. Okay, mm. You are in competition against a system that is breaking down. Your job, I've been saying it since the moment I stepped on the scene back in 2012. I've been saying it this, is to make as much money as possible and to get the hell out of harm's way. That is your only focus. Now, for some of you, it could be um, you know, making as much money, creating whatever income streams you can, taking advantage of the bubble that this economy is in, and then getting yourself into a, a you know, relocating to a better part of the country. For others, it's going to be completely offshoring, getting the hell out of the country, getting out of the Dodge. But whatever it is, do something. Do something. Because um, these guys are on a run-to-failure mentality. And they, why? Because they just don't know anything. And I've said it before this, I give the best analogy. Where we are at politically and bureaucratically is this. If the oceans of the world were to dry up tomorrow, we are dumb enough to keep building submarines. And we'll create a bucket brigade that will, that will form a bucket line that pours you know, buckets of water on the submarine to keep it wet. That's the type <laughs> that we are dealing with. Okay, And at one level. And the higher level are those that want to broker what the other side looks like to the to the what what is now the reality, which is the multipolar world, which is here to stay, and what that looks like. But in the end of it is you in the middle, and it's what you do from here on out that's going to be the difference maker. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Very well said, V. And for all those tuning in today, I want to thank you for listening to our geopolitical roundtable uh, discussion. Uh, also, want to thank V, Matthew, Paul, and Ken, and and Velas who had to uh, depart a little bit early. Uh, no big deal. He had some uh, work to get accomplished. And don't forget, also, do us a favor. Jump over to our contributor, our our, our, our discussion. The website's primarily roguenews.com. Uh, bookmark. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, you know, we attempt to make sure that all the content is censor-free. 
Also make sure to check out uh, Matthew Eretz's uh, Substack channel, which is uh, you know listed again. All these links are in the description of the video. Uh, check out the seriousreport.com uh, for Paul's work as well as his premium content, his podcast, and also Shotgun Economics for Ken Shorgan Jr. and also the Gadfly Multi-Channel Network. So I uh, want to thank everyone for listening in and uh, great discussion today. And uh, let's do this ag again real soon. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.